Roger Corman didn't just make Jaws ripoffs, he distributed Star Wars ripoffs too. Good news and bad news, girls. The good news is your dates are here. What's the bad news? They're dead. I'm gonna take you to the bank. To the blood bank. Welcome, B-Movie Maniacs, to another episode of B-Movie Babylon, a safe space for trash cinema lovers where we firmly believe the B&B movie stands for brilliant. I'm your host, Mike Bracken. Some of you may know me as the horror geek on YouTube or from my stint on Comedy Central's old pop culture game show, Beat the Geeks. Others will remember me as that dick on social media. And really, I'm all of the above. No matter how you know me, thanks for being here as we stock the forgotten corners of the video store in search of the best B-movies ever made. Whether you love martial arts mayhem, low-budget ripoffs of popular movies, direct-to-video skinamax flicks, classic horror fare, sleaze or exploitation, I've got you covered. Today, we're tackling another cult classic as we explore the furthest reaches of the galaxy in Luigi Cozzi's brilliantly delirious Star Wars ripoff, Star Crash. We'll talk about how this one came into existence, the trials and tribulations of shooting a film that wants to be Star Wars with a fraction of the budget, and the enduring legacy of Star Crash as it approaches its 45th birthday. But first, let's talk a bit about how I discovered this one which has gone on to become one of my all-time favorite cult flicks. If you've been to one of my live streams or heard me interviewed on a podcast, you've probably heard me talk about how Jaws and Halloween were seminal films from my childhood that helped foster my love of horror cinema. But while these two films were foundational in terms of shaping my taste, they weren't the only films I saw at a way too young age that would shape my love of cult cinema and launch me on a career path of talking about movies for a living. Which really is a great career path, and I highly recommend it if you like being poor. There was, however, one more film that really made an indelible impact on me as a kid. It was a little 1977 sci-fi film called Star Wars. I was not even five years old when Star Wars came out, but I remember sitting at the dining room table one day eating breakfast and there was something Star Wars related on the box. I also remember my mother showing me a picture of Darth Vader and asking if I wanted to see this space movie. Naturally, the answer was a gigantic yes, but they were a little concerned I was going to be scared by Darth Vader. These fears were absolutely unfounded because I have spent my entire life hating the good guys in Star Wars and loving Darth Vader. That love affair began the second I saw him on screen. I thought Luke was a whiny wimp. Han and Chewie were okay, and I couldn't have cared less about Princess Leia. But Darth Vader? That dude was awesome. I wanted to be able to force choke everyone. I grew up as the stereotypical Gen X latchkey kid. By the time I was in either first or second grade, I had my own house key and often came home to an empty house as my parents were working or off running errands. On those days, I'd come home, grab stacks of Oreos from the cabinet, and basically sit in front of the TV until my parents came home from wherever they were. Sometimes it might be an hour. Sometimes it might be several hours. I never cared. I'm an introvert who likes being alone, and coming home to an empty house was the rare occasion where a kid under 10 got left entirely to his own devices. It was a tantalizing taste of what adulthood was going to be like in a lot of ways. As I mentioned before, we didn't have cable back in those days, so you came home and you basically had five channels to choose from. It might have even been less than that if the weather was bad and you couldn't get a good signal from the smaller UHF channels in the city. Point is, your viewing options were pretty limited. You had some talk shows, some early news, Star Trek reruns, and maybe some cartoons if you could get those channels to come in. One of the constants of that era was the 4 o'clock movie, which was just a filler show one of the channels ran every weekday to kill the two-hour lead-in from 4 until the 6 o'clock news. They'd run random movies, edited for television naturally, but they often had themed weeks. 
It might be Killer Animal Week. It might be Charles Bronson Week. It might be Burt Reynolds Week. You just never knew. Horror weeks were pretty rare. Although I do remember scaring the shit out of myself watching Ray Milland in terror at the Wax Museum during a snowstorm one day. It was dark, the house was empty, the wind was howling, and eight-year-old me got legitimately creeped out before my parents finally came home. But even though there weren't a lot of horror weeks, there were always sci-fi themed weeks, or my absolute favorite, Japanese monster movie weeks. I learned to love Godzilla, Ghidorah, Mothra, and all those guys at a very young age. It was also where I first saw David Jansen in Birds of Prey, a weird little helicopter chase film that I thought was the bee's knees for some reason. Anyway, back in those days, going to the theater to see movies was a rare occurrence reserved for special occasions. The VCR wasn't yet a thing, or at least not for most households. If you wanted to see movies, you basically had one option. The edited-for-TV stuff that turned up either in primetime or these weekday or Saturday afternoon movie shows. It sounds terrible today, but it was all we had back then. And honestly, it was pretty instrumental in helping me discover films as a kid. I first saw stuff like One Million Years B.C., Fantastic Voyage, Theater of Blood, and hundreds of other films that would shape my taste on those local movie shows. They really opened up a world of movies to me back in a time when having access to movies was a lot harder than it is in today's everything's streaming world. Needless to say, Star Wars had a seismic impact on all of us. And while I have largely outgrown Star Wars at this stage of my life, and that's okay, I'm glad many of you still love it, it's just not really my thing anymore, I still love the original trilogy and all the knockoff films and TV shows it inspired. As a kid, I just couldn't get enough of things like Jason of Star Command, the original Battlestar Galactica, Buck Rogers, Metal Storms, and things like Star Crash. Luigi Coetzee's sci-fi cult classic often gets labeled as a Star Wars knockoff, and it absolutely is, as we'll discuss shortly, but it's not just a Star Wars knockoff. Coetzee loved sci-fi and created a film that is as much inspired by Lucas's blockbuster as it is films like Sinbad, Barbarella, and too many others to list. While the film was released theatrically in 1979, it didn't turn up on VHS until roughly 1984, which is when I finally got to see it for the first time. Needless to say, it made quite an impression on 12-year-old me. I, mean, I was a pretty savvy film viewer as a kid. I knew crap when I saw it, even if I liked it. Star Crash was definitely leaning to the crap side of the ledger, but how could any 12-year-old boy not love Caroline Monroe running around the galaxy in a leather bikini? Despite my very spot-on observation that Star Crash was not exactly high art, I couldn't quite shake the feeling that there was also something pretty magical about it. Seeing it after Star Wars made the film's effects seem even more primitive by comparison, but my love of Godzilla and kaiju movies had given me a real appreciation for miniatures and the challenges of filming these sort of fantastical things superimposed over a more mundane reality. And really, 12-year-old me could see that same kind of magic in Coetzee's work. The ships were obviously miniatures. The effects were stop-motion and lots of silly camera tricks. But I ain't that shit up. After seeing that VHS version of Star Crash a few times, the film sort of vanished until it got a DVD release in 2010. I was super curious to revisit it to see if it held up to my childhood memories. And boy, it really does. In fact, I dare say I appreciate it more today. Knowing all the stories behind how it was conceived and made and the lengths Coetzee and FX tech Armando Valcada went to to get their vision to the screen just gives you a whole new appreciation for Star Crash. I doubt anyone will ever go, I love Star Crash more than Star Wars, but honestly, there's a real heart to this one. Sure, it's nonsensical thanks to countless production compromises, and it really does feel like a child telling you his weird take on Lucas's film, but it's also utterly charming and it has that sort of classic lo-fi science fiction look that we really don't get anymore. 
some ways, Star Crash is maybe best described as, quote, like watching Star Wars through a kaleidoscope while very drunk. And really, that's high praise. I suppose this is as good a point as any to give a quick shout-out to writer Steven Romano, who may well be the world's biggest Star Crash expert. Romano was intimately involved with bringing the film to DVD back in 2010 and is a treasure trove of information about the origins and production of this film. He's literally forgotten more than any of us will ever know about this film. Romano's research and commentary tracks were invaluable resources in making this episode. Alright, but enough rambling from me. Let's take a quick break and then we'll dive into the details of Star Crash. The film immediately sets the tone by opening with some cheap-looking space effects and an even cheaper-looking spaceship. It feels very Star Wars-esque if you made Star Wars in your closet with a camcorder and Legos. The film's countless space miniatures were shot on a soundstage with walls covered in black. The black surface, which measured 90 feet by 45 feet, had tiny holes poked in it and behind the black material were tons and tons of lights. The colored lighting shining through the holes in the black material created the surrealist starlight effect. It's a ridiculously cheap looking effect in modern times, but I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> I love the miniatures and this whole sort of thing. Coetzee explains the biggest challenge of the film were the special effects. Guys like Antonio Margariti and Mario Bava had made Italian science fiction films, but the effects were done live on set. Coetzee wanted to go a more Harryhausen route by employing more elaborate optical effects, which earned him a great deal of ridicule. Things got more complicated with the shots of the ships and the like. Coetzee says they shot a lot of those sequences in layers of exposure. The ships would be filmed with the track they moved on, with the track masked out, then another exposure with the background effects or whatever else they needed. Many of the ship and robot miniatures used in the film were basically kitbashed, a process where people will take pieces of different action figures or models and mix and match them together to create their own new models. The FX crew here was inspired by Douglas Trumbull's work on Kubrick's 2001. Inside the ship, we have our discount stormtrooper types, who are basically guys in leather biking outfits with stupid helmets. Look, I'm just gonna say it now. If you love cheesy ripoffs of popular things and haven't seen Star Crash, you really need to remedy that. This is the kind of thing you'd love as a kid, then look at it as an adult and go, what were we thinking? I also have to point out that while the film is vacillating between the inside of the ship and the miniature shots of space, we get our first look at the film's red monster. Many people assume this was a shot of the globules in a lava lamp filmed and superimposed on a shot of the ship in space. This wasn't actually how they achieved the effect, though. Instead, they reportedly dumped enamel paint into a fish tank of water and filmed it in slow motion. This highlights one of the really cool things about how they shot Star Crash. They didn't shoot tons of blue screen or have access to modern digital trickery. Instead, they shot things in layers and combined them all in frame, basically. It gives the film a really distinct and charming look. Anyway, flying through the red paint makes everyone on the ship thrash around holding their ears. I mean, why this happens is beyond me. Your guess is as good as mine. And then that ship explodes. Okay, good movie. Let's wrap this thing up. Except this was all just a lead into the credits. If you want to know who to thank for the cinematic delight we're about to experience, you can thank father and son producers Nat and Patrick Waxberger. The cast of this film was a real B-movie who's who. We've got Caroline Monroe, the Hoff himself, David Hasselhoff, the legendary Joe Spinell, who worked alongside Monroe on both Maniac and the last horror movie, and Christopher Plummer as the Emperor. I feel like Plummer probably took this gig because he thought it would be like being Obi-Wan was for Alec Guinness. 
The film is credited to director Louis Coates, who astute fans of my work will realize is actually Luigi Coetzee pretending to be American. For his part, Coetzee wanted to sign the film as directed by Luigi Coetzee, but the producers balked early in the production, saying they needed him to use an American-sounding name because there was no way Americans would believe an Italian could make a science fiction film like Star Wars. Coetzee had been using the Louis Coates pseudonym since he was a kid, so that was the name he used here and in other productions later in his career. His directorial style often embraced bold, visually striking aesthetics and a blend of genres, merging elements of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Coetzee's subsequent works continue to exhibit his passion for fantastical storytelling and the integration of vibrant visual effects. Throughout his career, Coetzee remained a significant contributor to the Italian film industry, demonstrating a versatile skill set in various roles, ranging from director to screenwriter and special effects creator. His filmography includes titles such as Contamination, Hercules, The Black Cat, and Paganini Horror. So anyway, since that first ship is blown up like a star going supernova, we need to find some new characters. And we get them in the form of Caroline Monroe and her sidekick, Acton. Monroe has the ridiculous character name of Stella Star, which I guess is no less ridiculous than Luke Skywalker if you think about it. But she's not actually the Luke of this film, instead she's our sexy Han Solo. Acton, meanwhile, is one part poor man's Chewbacca and Luke Skywalker all rolled into one. Acton was supposed to be an alien, but actor Marjo Gortner refused to wear the extensive makeup for the part. Coetzee says he was great to work with, but that he really wishes he'd have been an alien instead of a weird human guy with powers. At any rate, it's worth noting that Coetzee, Nat Waksberger, and R.A. Dillon all worked on this script, which is sort of amazing. Why did it take three guys to basically rip off Star Wars? Matt Waksberger was a very successful producer who shepherded a ton of films in his career, but he's perhaps most famous for being the producer of one almost no one has ever seen. In 1973, Waksberger teamed up with Cherry Lewis to make the notorious and unreleased The Day the Clown Cried, wherein Lewis plays a clown in a concentration camp. That movie could be its own entire episode, but the key takeaway here is that it's the one movie this guy actually walked away from. At any rate, they're just out here cruising through space, presumably going really fast so they can try to beat the whole Kessel Run record, but they're about to get pulled over by the Space Cops, who are led by Thor. I guess that's a slightly better name than Stella Star. But it's not just Thor, we've also got some kind of weird Darth Vader C-3PO stand-in in the form of Space Sheriff L. L may have a girly name, but I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be a dude. Guy in the L suit is Judd Hamilton, Caroline Monroe's husband at the time. When they approached Monroe to play Stella Star, Hamilton reportedly started trying to figure out ways to get himself cast in the film so he could be with her and help her navigate what was her first major starring role. Originally, they intended for an Italian to be inside the suit, but Hamilton argued that was dumb because Monroe wouldn't be able to understand his lines through the helmet and in Italian. The proposed solution was to have someone read Elle's dialogue from off screen, but Hamilton convinced them to cast him instead. And it fit, because he's a pretty imposing figure in that outfit. With Hamilton set to do the physical part of the role, they then got singer and voice actor Hamilton Camp to do the voice of Elle, and the role was expanded a bit in the dialogue recording sessions. Naturally, Stella's not going to pull over for the cops, so she tells Chewie, I mean Acton, to jump to hyperspace. And the effect is vaguely Star Wars-esque. Again, if you made Star Wars for like $8, and with things you found collecting dust in your attic. This is also probably a good time to point out that while Caroline Monroe is Stella Star, that this is not her voice doing the dialogue. Plot us a new course so that cop can't find us. Even as you speak, it's been taken care of. Like so many Italian films, this one was redubbed in post. 
Often, this was because they shot the films either without sound and just added it all in later, or because of the multinational nature of these productions often meant you'd have actors of different nationalities in the same scene, and many of them didn't speak English or didn't speak English well. So you might have three people in a scene, one doing lines in English, another in Italian, and a third in German. So they just dub it all after the fact. Monroe says the actors were promised they'd be able to redub all of their dialogue and their own voices in post. But since the film ran over budget and took longer to shoot than originally scheduled, Coetzee was overridden and they used different voice actors. This is one of the rare things Monroe dislikes about Star Crash. She felt that Candy Clark, the actress who dubbed her, sounded nothing like her and that it lessened the performance. Anyway, after jumping through hyperspace, they land right next to an abandoned ship, and we get another fantastic effects shot of a superimposed Stella spacewalking to that ship. It's like the worst YouTube green screen ever, honestly. It's absolutely charming in its execution. Turns out, Stella finds a survivor on this ship which was one of the escape pods from the ship that blew up in the opening, and then brings him back to her place and he's busy telling her about some red monsters, which I'm sure will be important later. But before that mystery can get unraveled, our discount Darth Vader is back and Stella is surrounded. A lot of this film was shot at Chinichita in Rome, which is the largest film studio in Europe. There have been over 3,000 movies shot there over the years, both Italian productions and films from other countries. This has led to the studio being called Hollywood on the Tiber. It was founded back in 1937 by Mussolini not only to create propaganda films, but to also revitalize the Italian film industry. Something it was really successful at doing. Over the years, filmmakers like Fellini, Scorsese, Coppola, and Sergio Leone have made films there. But it's probably most famous for Star Crash. Okay, not really, but Star Crash was definitely one of the 3,000 movies made there. Back on the ship, we finally meet Joe Spinell. He's playing Count Zarth Arn, a quote, megalomaniac renegade who has been on dethroning the Emperor and proclaiming himself supreme ruler of the universe. This is kind of perfect casting, honestly. Joe Spinell wasn't as expensive to get as Christopher Plummer, but the actor didn't have a ton of scenes as the Count in the film. As such, he was reportedly kind of bored and asked Coetzee if he could be a dialogue director on the film, so he pulled double duty here. Oddly, most people, myself included, assume this is a dubbed voice for Spinell as well, but it's actually him. Yes? What is it, Elric? It's a pretty dramatic departure from the more soft-spoken Spinell we'd see in other roles, though. Look, Spinell is already awesome, but it gets even better because he's got two murder bots, too. Kind of like Twicky from the Gil Gerard Buck Rogers series, only with swords and bad intentions. The robots almost had me convinced the effects were going to get better in this thing, but the very next scene finds us meeting a new character, who's basically a disembodied alien head in a globe with more lava lamp behind him, and it's truly amazingly terrible, and I kinda love it. This guy is our judge, and he's sentencing Stella and her pal for the crimes of smuggling. I have no idea what they were smuggling, because even with three screenwriters, it seems no one thought it was important enough to write that in. Anyway, Stella's getting life and hard labor. And apparently, you have to wear some sexy goth bondage bodysuit to do hard labor in space. Not that I'm complaining. I like to think that Coetzee basically got this movie funded when he took it to the film market by telling potential investors, look, it's like Star Wars, but it's gonna have Caroline Monroe running around in a leather S&M bikini and thigh-high boots. I mean, he beat Princess Leia to the slave bikini thing by like four years. Coetzee says the bikini was very much inspired by Barbarella and that everyone was in favor of Caroline Monroe wearing as little as possible on the film. However, original producer American International Pictures felt that Monroe was showing too much skin, 
which wasn't a problem for a theatrical release, but would present challenges in terms of selling the film for television airings. This is why Monroe wears a lot more clothes in the film's second half. It's also interesting that no one else in the prison is wearing this kind of outfit, too. She's only been in prison for 12 hours, but she's had enough, so she's plotting her escape, which involves shooting lots of hokey-looking phasers with terrible sound effects. And after the place blows up, she winds up in a place that looks suspiciously like Earth, and has to run through fields of weeds taller than she is in that bikini. I <laughs> bet that sucked. And she's getting picked up by an alien spacecraft in yet another dodgy effects scene. It's amazing. Look, you can make fun of the low-budget effects in Star Crash all day if you want, and I certainly have. But this is really the kind of stuff you no longer see in the CGI era. And honestly, it's fun to watch these guys try to create Star Wars for like 1 50th of the money and just having to do everything as cheaply as possible. This was absolutely a labor of love. The original plan was to make Star Crash for just 300k, which would have been absolutely impossible even with the relatively cheap and primitive effects. However, when Waksberger took Coetzee's treatment to AIP, they were all in on it and wanted a bigger movie. How big? Well, big enough that they actually talked about casting Raquel Welch as Stella Star. However, all this extra money never trickled down to the most important department. FX tech Armando Valcada was only given $30,000 for all of the film's miniatures and effects sequences. There were actually more sequences in the script than wound up in the film. They ran out of money to finish sequences, or the work had to be done so cheaply that it didn't look good on screen. And I should also point out that if you watch this and get a very Barbarella vibe from Caroline Monroe, well, you're not wrong. That was one of Coetzee's other big inspirations. The casting of Monroe as Stella Starr definitely does owe back to Coetzee's love of Harryhausen's work, too. He became aware of her after she was in The Golden Voyage of Sinbad back in 1973. Monroe, for her part, has nothing but good things to say about working with Luigi Coetzee. And the director reciprocates. They still send each other Christmas cards. How cute is that? Anyway, she invites herself right into this strange ship like she's Goldilocks, but surprise, it's a trap. It's Thor and L's ship. Except there's a plot twist coming. They're not the bad guys. They're on a secret mission to free Stella's sidekick, Acton, and they've commuted her sentence. So now she's got to go meet the Emperor and thank him. One way this film sort of deviates from Star Wars is that the Emperor in this film is actually not a bad guy. So hooray for originality, I guess. Ah, and it's Christopher Plummer, who's clearly not being taxed by the performance's requirements. I come to you because my faithful robot, L, has told me that you are the only one who could save us. In typical Italian film tradition, Plummer was hired because he was a big star. His day rate was more than the production could really afford, but they got around this by hiring him to do all the scenes in just three shooting days. Plummer, ever the professional, apparently finished in a day and a half. Coetzee wisely decided to use footage of Plummer in each act of the film, so while he only had a tiny amount of footage of the big star, it's spread out in such a way that it feels like he's actually involved in the film in a major way, even though he doesn't have a ton of screen time. And I gotta be honest, I love it when some big actor turns up in these weird movies that are totally beneath them. It's like Michael Caine turning up in Jaws the Revenge, or the entire latter half of Nick Cage's career. It's one thing to be a young actor who started in B-movies and got famous later, but to be a big star and go do a B-movie is just endlessly fascinating to me. Anyway, the Emperor is flattering them by telling them she's the best pilot in the galaxy, which we've seen zero proof of. You know, you must be the best pilot in the whole galaxy. 
I mean, she hopped to hyperspace and immediately got captured anyway, but I guess they need her and act on for the war with Joe Spinell. Joe, it turns out, is working on some super weapon. Maybe it's a Death Star. Wait, that would get them sued. Maybe it's a Death Sun. Alderaan is officially on notice. The Emperor needs them to travel through the haunted stars, which sounds spooky, and to destroy the weapon. Oh, and naturally, there's one more thing. When you complete the mission, search for the commander of that missing ship. He was my only son. Coetzee, who really was more of a sci-fi fantasy guy than a horror guy, classifies this film as science fantasy as opposed to science fiction. And really, if you change the clothes and sets, you could sell this story as a sword and sorcery tale pretty easily. His efforts to show producers in Italy the genre was a viable one were largely met with indifference and apathy prior to Star Crash. Coetzee crafted a sizzle reel for a project called Saturn on the Horizon. It was basically pitched as the Poseidon adventure in space. It was about survivors on a lost spaceship, and essentially everyone passed on it. Waxberger was insistent that he had no interest in making sci-fi. But then, in May of 1977, a little film called Star Wars opened. And suddenly everyone in Italy, and everywhere else, was very interested in making science fiction films. Matt Waxberger was now one of those converts, and he wanted to work with Coetzee. The catch? Waxberger didn't want to make Coetzee's Lost Ship film, he wanted to make another Star Wars. But there was a problem. Star Wars wouldn't release for like another six months in Italy, but Waxberger wanted a script in a mere ten days. So Coetzee had ten days to cobble together a script for a movie based on another movie he hadn't even seen. Which is probably why Star Crash feels like a drunk guy recounting Star Wars when you describe the plot. Coetzee says he did get his hands on a novelization of the film, though, so he had a pretty basic understanding of what the film was about. And then he set out to craft his own version. He decided to change things up by replacing the male hero with a girl in this outing. Although, to be fair, Stella Star has always felt more like Han Solo than Luke Skywalker to me. Acton is really the Luke parallel in this film. He also insisted that she be accompanied by one robot and one alien. Coetzee thinks his version of the film is different than Star Wars, and I'm not really sure how he comes to that conclusion. There are a lot of similarities here, but there's also a Harryhausen influence with the miniatures, a character name nod to Ray Bradbury, and other little influences as well. So it's a Star Wars pastiche, but it's still pretty crazy and fun. Anyway, they set off in search of the weapon and the Emperor's son. And clearly there's no time to spare because Stella hasn't changed out of her bondage wear. I mean, not that any of the men are complaining. She really is sort of Vampirella and Barbarella. The first stop finds Stella and Elle down on a beach planet. Wild how all the planets in this movie look suspiciously like Earth so far. But hey, I mean, at least she's basically dressed for the beach, I guess. And maybe they've landed on Wonder Woman's Earth because they immediately encounter Amazons. It's wild to me that Elle sounds like a robot Yosemite Sam. At any rate, the Amazons have upped our scantily clad female quotient in this movie considerably. But any hope of them being friendly is quickly dashed as one of the Amazons blasts Elle with a phaser. The upside here is that we get to see Caroline Monroe fight in that bikini. And I'm not gonna lie, she's more convincing fighting than Seagal. Monroe, for her part, did all of her own stunts in this film. Unfortunately, she's quickly subdued. Which, again, leads me to wonder why the Emperor thought she was the person for this job. But Elle's still alive. They drag her off to meet the Amazon Queen, who really seems out of place in this movie, honestly. And we need to stop and talk for a second about that Queen. Who is actress Nadia Cassini? 
Cassini had an interesting career, turning up in this film, some Italian sexploitation films, and then reaching her greatest success in a number of popular Italian sex comedies. She even branched out into music with some hit records in Europe in the 80s. Why didn't she do a duet with the Hoff, I have to wonder. Anyway, she was a beauty who lost her right ear and had her face disfigured in a botched plastic surgery procedure in the 1980s. Back in the movie, the Queen reveals she's working with Joe Spinell and they're about to put Stella into something called the Mind Probe. But Elle is here to save the day. Again, why was she the choice for this mission? Has she done anything successfully so far on her own? She and Elle flee, but the Amazon Queen has her own giant murder bots too. It's like they're Galactus or something. Every time I watch this movie, I wonder where they all got killer robots from. Luigi Coetzee absolutely adores the work of Ray Harryhausen, which is obvious the second you see these giant robots. They're filmed in a stop-motion style that's very clearly inspired by Harryhausen's stop-motion work on Sinbad. Modern audiences almost assuredly find all of this ridiculous, but if you grew up in this era like I did, it's a charming throwback to the magic of movies I loved as a kid. Naturally, Elle and Stella get separated, and Stella's gonna have to fight the giant robot. And since we've already seen her lose to a bunch of Amazons, I'm not feeling confident she's gonna pull this off. But she is gonna roll around in the sand like this is a Miss July shoot. Fortunately, she's again saved from her own failures by a Deus Ex rocket ship, which drops in out of nowhere and blasts the robot for her. Again, if you're keeping score at home, Stella has done absolutely nothing right on her own. Apparently, we're done on the Amazon planet because now we're back in space for another spaceship dogfight. I always love these sequences in Star Wars. Here, not quite so much. I also should point out that her ship has a glaring design flaw. The deck has like two portal windows that kind of look like eyes. So, how do they actually see anything to engage with it? It's like trying to fight a naval battle looking solely through the portal windows from your cruise ship suite. But at least this scene lets us rip off Star Wars again. This time it's the space dogfight scene with the Millennium Falcon, only way less impressive. Apparently they did want to shoot it like it was Star Wars, but they just didn't have the money to pull off that whole gun turret cockpit thing. They take out the attackers and it's off to the next planet. This one is basically Hoth. I have no idea how Stella is going to make that bikini work on an ice planet. Fortunately, she apparently brought another outfit. Back on the ship, Acton gets jumped by Thor, who's a bad guy pretending to be a good guy. <laughs> another plot twist. Thor's going to leave them behind to die on Hoth, but naturally the ship won't start. But it's okay, he's just not going to let them in so they can freeze to death. Don't worry though, Elle is going to use his power to put her in a state of suspended animation. Maybe this is how the thing started. Oh, and Acton can see the future. It still doesn't explain how he deflected lasers and all that, but I guess saying he could use the force would have probably gotten them sued too. Acton's character really does seem to have suffered the most in terms of rewrites, changes, and the like. A lot of his arc in the finished film doesn't really make sense, but he was basically supposed to be an alien with force-like powers and a mission to protect Stella so she can fulfill her destiny of saving the Empire and hooking up with the Prince or something. A lot of that got jettisoned along the way though, so you instead have a weird character who has these powers for no real fathomable reason. With that all resolved, it's off to the third planet, a desolate wasteland. It also looks suspiciously like Earth. The segment here was actually filmed on Mount Etna, which was not only an active volcano, but a pretty inhospitable place in general. The temperatures would get to sub-zero levels during the shoot here, requiring that everyone stay bundled up between takes. Monroe actually got injured here when she fell down the side of the hill. Never the trooper, they patched her up and she kept going. I should also point out that we get yet another sort of outfit change here. 
The bondage bikini is still here, but now it's covered in what looks like a see-through vinyl rain suit. Super stylish. Elle heads in to investigate, but Stella gets attacked by some local mutants. It's like the hills have eyes planet. And then they destroy Elle by clubbing him to death. Honestly, I'd love to sit in on the script meetings for this thing. This feels like a low-budget Ewok sequence, which again, this Star Wars ripoff predates Return of the Jedi by like four years. Maybe the ripoff went both ways. And I'm assuming these dudes are cannibals, because if there is one thing I know, it's all good Italian genre films need cannibals. But before they can carve her up like a Christmas goose, she's saved again. This time by a guy in a mask shooting lasers out of his eyes. So again, totally failed in her objective and should be dead. But this guy rescues her, and surprise, it's the Hoff. <laughs> About time he showed up. Coatsy says he selected Hasselhoff because he wanted Prince Simon to be, quote, beautiful but dumb, which pretty much sums up the Hoff's early career. Coatsy found Hasselhoff after being sent some tapes of American soap opera actors and knew he would be perfect for his film. The director was very complimentary of Hasselhoff, saying he was a total professional who showed up each day not only knowing his lines, but everyone else's lines too. It wasn't all good vibes with the Hoff, though. Caroline Monroe's husband, Judd Hamilton, played Elle the Robot, and according to Coetzee, was jealous of Hasselhoff doing the romantic scenes with his wife. He even nixed a romantic kiss in the end of the film between the two. At any rate, the Hoff is no better at fighting than Stella, and they get recaptured. But don't worry, this movie loves its deus ex machinas, and we've got another one in the form of Acton with a lightsaber. Although they probably call it a laser sword or something, again, to avoid getting sued. And another incident where Stella needs someone to save her. Imagine Han Solo being this inept. Also, Acton might actually be a bigger dork than Luke Skywalker. After the introductions, I noticed exactly one thing. I think the Hoff is wearing lipstick and eyeliner. But in a twist of fate, it turns out this is the Count's secret planet too. Which is handy, because I don't think they had the budget to go to another one. They eventually find the computer headquarters of the Count, but surprise, the murder bots are back. I feel like we should point out that Joe Spinell just really chews the scenery here. He's like a snidely whiplash level of villain. It's kind of hilarious. He definitely gives off Sid Haig and Jason of Star Command vibes. Steven Romano shares a great story here about this scene on the film's commentary track. Star Crash was a film plagued by money issues. They were so bad that Spinell reportedly wanted to go after production supervisor Luigi Nannarini with a knife because he hadn't been paid as per diem for food. Anyway, Spinell got his food money because no one wanted to piss off Joe Spinell. But when it came time to shoot this particular scene, arguably Spinell's biggest in the entire film, the producers asked Coetzee if they could cut it down to 30 seconds. The reason? They had about a minute of film and no money to buy more. According to Romano, Spinell took his own per diem money and bought films so they could shoot his big scene. If that doesn't sum up the magic of working in the Italian film industry, I'm not sure what does. Honestly, Spinell would have made a great Star Wars villain. Shame he didn't get to try in a film with a bigger budget. Anyway, he's out, and he's gonna blow up the planet with Stella, the Hoff, and Acton on it. But Acton's still got his lightsaber. I mean, laser sword. And he's gonna use the Force. I mean, his psychic powers to take out the murder bots. And really, this should be super easy, since these things are stiffer than a shot of whiskey. Except, Acton goes down, and now the Hoff is gonna have to take the sword. This is probably gonna hurt Acton's chances with Stella, but that was over the second the Hoff showed up. Who could resist Michael Knight? Naturally, our hero Stella is doing absolutely nothing here. Way to go, Stella. Super heroic. But Acton might have saved his chances because he winds up taking out the killbot himself in the end. 
Except he's not getting off this planet alive. Don't worry. You and the prince will live. Acton's death scene is one of those sequences in the film that really doesn't make a ton of sense now because they made so many changes to the script. Basically, he was supposed to be a protector of Caroline Monroe to help her fulfill her destiny, except all of that got jettisoned, but they still kept some of that dialogue for his death scene. So if you watch his death scene and think it sounds like, where the hell did all this come from? You're not wrong. Anyway, he shuffles off this mortal coil, but the Emperor is here, so we don't have any time to mourn him. The planet's about to blow, but don't worry. The Emperor has special powers, and he can just stop time from his ship. Imperial battleship! Halt! The flow of time! I swear to God, I made up stories like this in third grade. But hey, we do finally get this movie's version of the Death Star blowing up Alderaan. The bad news is that planet is vaporized. But the good news is the Count thinks they're all dead, so they can launch a sneak attack. I know everyone makes fun of the Christmas light stars and the tiny Lego spaceships in this thing, but I'm gonna be honest, I really like them. They're not remotely realistic at all, but they're just adorable and charming. This is basically the kind of thing I'd have wanted to make as a kid, and good for Luigi Coetzee for finding people to help him fund this thing. It is funny that it's so cheap that they recycle a lot of the miniature ships flying through space shots, though. You'll definitely get deja vu watching this thing. Basically, now we're getting our attack on the Death Star sequence as the ships take aim at the Count ship. Except I don't recall the Rebels launching torpedoes secretly filled with soldiers at the Death Star like they do here. I'll give the movie this. They might have made this thing for like $30, but they threw everything they had at this climax sequence. We had space fights, phaser fights, and again, Stella is nowhere to be found. Unfortunately, the sneak attack fails, and now it's the dark night of the soul moment for our heroes because the Count is going to blow up the Emperor's planet. But there's one last card for the good guys to play. Star Crash. And you thought that was just a title attempt to sound like Star Wars without sounding like Star Wars. This, of course, means Stella gets one more chance to be a hero. I'm guessing she's totally gonna fuck this up too. I have no real idea what Star Crash actually is, but it apparently involves blowing up some kind of floating city as a weapon. Producer Nat Waxberger liked Coetzee's script, but hated the original title. Coetzee was calling his film Empire of the Stars, but that was way too generic and not Star Wars enough. Waxberg was insistent they change the title to Star Crash. The new title bugged Coetzee because there was no actual Star Crash in the movie, but this inspired him to create one for the film's climax, even if I still really have no idea what an actual Star Crash is. But before we get to that, Elle's back, just like 3PO. Reunited, they set off in the floating city, and frankly, it all feels a little anticlimactic after the battle on the Count's ship. So, the giant space battle slash battle on the Count's ship in the third act was the original ending of Coetzee's script. The good guys win, evil is thwarted, everyone goes home happy. Except now Coetzee wanted this star crash, so he came up with the idea of having the Emperor's forces lose, and now they had to crash this floating city into the Count's ship. Not exactly a star, but I guess it's close enough. Stella and 3PO flee the floating city ship, which is conveniently empty of other life, and then it crashes into the Count ship, taking him down in a fiery explosion that feels like it lasts forever. Gotta be honest, this is not exactly heroic on Stella's part, but at least she didn't screw it up, so we'll count that as a win. And while I'm being honest, I think Neil deGrasse Tyson would have a field day with the science in this movie. With the Count dead and order restored, Plummer takes us out with voiceover narration. 
Hi, let's take another quick break and then we'll talk about the enduring legacy of Star Crash. Star Crash made its debut in March of 1979 and reportedly earned about 2.25 million in ticket sales during its theatrical run. Online reports claimed Coetzee had a $4 million budget, but I'm not convinced that's accurate. The film isn't exactly a critical darling, much to no one's surprise. Star Crash has a 25% rating from critics on aggregator site Rotten Tomatoes and a 36% audience score with over a thousand reviews. I'll be honest, I get the critical drubbing, but I also don't agree with it. Star Crash is a dumb movie with a heroine who is completely ineffective and a script that feels like it was made up as they went, and presumably it was in some instances. The changed ending was conceived over a bottle of wine before they shot it, but it's also a tiny Italian film trying to do what Lucas was doing for a fraction of the money. At any rate, the film didn't hurt Luigi Cozzi's career in the slightest. Coetzee went on to help more films, including the unofficial Suspiria sequel, The Black Cat, the alien ripoff Contamination, and Hercules and Sinbad films. Amazingly, we never got a Star Crash 2. Coetzee says there were rumblings, but it never came together. For his part, Coetzee never officially wrote a Star Crash 2. However, he'd written another sci-fi script called Star Riders around the same time. And are you sensing a theme here? That script never went anywhere because he was working on Star Crash. However, L actor Judd Hamilton felt like they needed to make a sequel. Coetzee told him he could shop the Star Riders script around for free to see if there was any interest. And there was, from none other than Canon Films. Coetzee met with Golan and Globus, who gave him his script, with one major change. They'd replace the main character of Star Riders with Stella Star. And really, that makes sense. But it didn't work for Coetzee, who refused to agree to the changes. Amazingly, this didn't sour his relationship with Golan and Globus, who would bring him on later to make Hercules with Lou Ferrigno. These days, he works at Profondo Rosso, the Dario Argento store and museum in Italy. I dream of visiting one day when he's working and just talking his ear off all afternoon. Caroline Monroe's career didn't suffer either. After starring here, she'd reteam with Coetzee on his production of The Black Cat, albeit a supporting role. She'd reunite with Joe Spinell for both Maniac in 1980 and the last horror film. She was also in cult classics like Slaughter High and continues to work to this day. I don't even know if we need to mention the Hoff. He parlayed his work here into the gig doing Night Rider and has had a long and sort of illustrious career thanks to Baywatch. And finally, we come to Joe Spinell. Spinell remains a revered character actor 35 years after his untimely passing. His resume is an impressive one. He remains perhaps best known for his chilling turn in Maniac, but also had parts in films like Cruising, The Godfather, Rocky, and Nighthawks. If you've never seen Star Crash, allow me to tell you you've been missing out. This thing is a kooky hoot. I never argue that Star Crash is a good movie in the traditional sense of the term, but it's a great B-movie though. What the film lacked in budget and tools and all that, it more than makes up for with heart. You can tell Coetzee and the crew were really committed to making the best possible film they could. They just bit off more than they could chew in some instances. And you can't really blame them for that. Making big budget sci-fi spectacles wasn't easy, and they gave it their best shot. The result is an uneven pastiche of other better films, but it's also pretty amazing in its own right. But no one wants a movie night that's just one movie, so allow me to be your cult movie concierge and suggest several other films that pair well with Star Crash for your next movie marathon. I was gonna just tell you all to see Star Wars here, but I'm pretty sure everyone has seen Star Wars at this point. 
So instead, I'll recommend another Corman classic, his other sci-fi space opera, Battle Beyond the Stars. That one's got Robert Vaughn, George Pappard, Sybil Danning, and all your favorite Cormanisms crammed into a film billed as the Magnificent Seven in Space. If that doesn't sell you, I don't know what will. If you want to make it a real movie marathon, wrap things up with 1982's The Man Who Saved the World, aka Turkish Star Wars. One of the great joys of the internet, okay, one of the only joys of the internet at this point, is seeing people discover Turkish Star Wars for the very first time. If you've never seen it, boy, are you in for a treat. This thing is incredible. I'm not going to say anything else about it. I don't want to ruin the surprises you have in store if you track down a copy. Just believe me, if you love B-movies, you won't regret it. Alright, that's enough of my nonsense. Let's wrap this thing up. I'm always a little bit sad that Luigi Coetzee didn't have a bigger career. Unlike his pal Dario Argento or the other kings of the golden age of Italian horror cinema, Coetzee was always more interested in making fantastical films, which was a tough sell in Italy even under the best of circumstances. Despite budgetary constraints, Coetzee's imaginative vision and dedication to the project birthed a film that, while initially received with mixed reviews, later garnered a cult following for its campy charm and inventive approach to the genre. Starcrash will never be mistaken for high art. It's a space opera, and a fairly derivative one at that. However, dismissing it solely as an attempt to cash in on Star Wars is at least a little bit short-sighted. Sure, Coetzee used the producer's desire to hop on the Star Wars gravy train to get himself a gig making a science fiction film, but he also crammed in homages to a bunch of other films and writers he loved too. This film really was a labor of love, and if you've ever tried to actually create something, you realize that no matter how well you plan, the projects never come out quite as great as you imagined them in your head. Just like this show. Coetzee would assuredly have loved to have had access to the kind of tools and resources Lucas had, but he didn't, and so he just made the best movie he could. Really, Star Crash is big dumb fun. You can't ask for anything more from it than that. So, what do you think of Star Crash? Have you seen this one before, or is this your first experience with it? Leave me a comment and let me know. I may feature some on future episodes. If you're watching on YouTube, please be sure to like and subscribe. If you're on another podcast platform, consider leaving me a review and share them with your friends. Until next time, I'm Mike Bracken, and you've just experienced another trip to B-Movie Babylon. The video vault is now closed. <laughs>